Lord, we do indeed lean heavy into your word to be the means through which you shape our hearts and our desires. Remind us that we are cleansed of our guilt and our shame and of our sinful ways and urged to live new lives. Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. In Mark, we're going to look at verses, Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. this pulpit is too far for my glasses to be any good. The writing is too small to see it well. (laughs) All right, I'm going to try. Here we go. And Jesus uh, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? All right, I'm going to tell you perhaps one of the most embarrassing moments, times, it wasn't just a moment, I should say, in my life. So this means I've come a long way and finally recovering from it a little bit. It was all the way back in the seventh grade. It was the story of my, my, my first girlfriend. Yes, you could already tell it's going to be bad, right? I, I had hosted this, uh, this party for my classmates at my house, and you know, a bunch of people were there. And there was a girl there who approached me and said, hey, one of my friends thinks you're cute. And I asked her who it was. It was a girl named Paige, and I thought she was cute too. And I said, well, hey, will you you ask your friend if she would, you know, go out with me or the term, you know, go with me? And so she went and asked her friend, and she came back and said, oh, she said yes. And so we smiled at each other across the room, and the party was over, and I felt pretty good. I had a girlfriend. Hadn't yet talked to her, but I had a girlfriend. And so, you know, days went by, 
Weeks went by. I talked to her on the phone maybe once or twice. And then I got this call from this you know, friend who did the initial matching who said, well, Paige wants to break up with you. <laughs> I said, okay. And that was the end of that. <laughs> I hear I had this relationship with this girl, and I talked to her a few times, but it had absolutely no impact upon my life. I never met with her one time, I don't think. Maybe once, maybe if I'm forgetting. The whole time we were supposedly in a relationship. And you think, was it really a relationship? I, I use that illustration because I think, you know, that sometimes Christians have that kind of relationship with the Lord. We talk to Him maybe once in a while, but we never really spend any time with Him. And the relationship has zero impact upon the way we live. The kind of relationship that Jesus talks to his disciples about having is not that kind of relationship. It's a relationship that makes a big impact upon the way they live, and he calls that relationship a discipleship-type relationship. Now, there were a variety of different kinds of people who engaged with Jesus at some time or another. We saw the crowds, and we see the crowds throughout his ministry coming to him when they know he's in town because he can do miraculous things. If they have a particular need, they might come before him, ask him to be healed, but then they go about their way. They've got what they needed. They went on. Their time with him really makes little impact, at least for eternity. It might have an immediate impact upon helping someone through their disease or with their struggles, but in the eternal view of things, there was no impact. The one difference is those who call themselves disciples. Disciples are we're a little bit unique. It's, it's not a term that we hear out really outside the church in today's world, but in the first century, it was a common practice. There were teachers and rabbis who were quite influential and would go about uh, the, the countryside, and they would teach their things, and they would attract people to them by their teaching, and those people who, fought, who liked their teaching would choose to commit themselves to be in this formal relationship with their teacher. They would become their disciple. And the idea of that in the first century is to become someone's disciple means you are aligning yourself to them. You are, you are foregoing other pursuits for a time that you can attach yourself to this person and what they are teaching and training in terms of the rigors of life. So they knew there was some measure of expectation for when you became a disciple of someone. Jesus' disciples were a little bit unique in that they didn't come to Jesus first, but rather Jesus called them to himself. And the whole point of him calling them was that they might follow him. And so they followed him. They followed Jesus around. And in this passage we come to, he's telling us a little bit about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, to be someone whose life is actually impacted long-term by a relationship with Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus? And uh, that's what this passage really is, is telling us about. And I want to go into that because the very first thing he alerts us to, and anytime he's talking about discipleship, he says there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. And uh, 
Again, in the first century, disciples would have understood this. But I don't think they quite grasp how much the cost would be to following Jesus. And he begins to tell them because the cost is, is quite high to be a follower of Jesus. So, for example, as we, as we come to this passage, beginning in verse 34, he tells them the cost. And by the way, what we're, if, you're, if you're following the outline, we're going to talk about the, the cost of discipleship, the benefit of discipleship, and how do we, how do we move to make that choice of, of seeing that the, co- the benefit outweighs the cost. But first of all, we have to understand something about the cost. So it begins in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I know when, when we read that, we're thinking about Jesus and hanging on the cross, but this was before that ever happened. That wasn't a picture they had in their minds. The idea of take up your cross and follow me was a, wasn't, a, it wasn't a foreign concept just because Jesus hadn't done it yet. It was a familiar concept. They'd seen people hanging on crosses before. It was the way the state executed people who they didn't like, in essence. It was, it was a form of execution, and it was a particularly horrific form of, persecu- of, of torture and, and uh, killing, by the way, execution. For the idea of hanging upon a cross was that you would be hung up, whether it was nailed or tied to a cross, and you would just be placed there and left. Now, you think, well, how does that kill you? It doesn't kill you initially. You just hang there. But the idea is if you, if you don't hold yourself up, then eventually the, the way in which you are resting is going to cause your lungs to be restricted, your airways to be restricted, and you will eventually asphyxiate. You will, you will eventually die of a lack of oxygen. And that doesn't happen for a long, long time as you hang there, depending on how strong you are, depending on how long your muscles can hold out and endure. So you can imagine you're holding yourself up, and eventually your muscles get tired, but you keep holding yourself up because you can't breathe, and they begin to cramp. Now, this may go on for hours, even days. This could go on. So it is not a pleasant way to die until you just cannot hold yourself up anymore, and then you experience the lack of air, and you die. That, 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 that wasn't the end of it either. It wasn't just that you die in a slow way, but you also die in a way that is quite humiliating because you're stripped naked and you're hung in a public place so that all of your friends, all of your family, everyone that you've ever known in the town can see you totally exposed as a proclamation that here is someone who is guilty. Here is someone who ought to be ashamed of their lives. So it is a, it is a terrible thing. So when Jesus tells them This is what it costs me to follow me. You have to be ready to deny yourself and take up your cross. Be willing to face this kind of torment and torture to follow me. That's what it's going to cost you. Now, we we get the concept of that. It's a hard thing for us to grasp in living in America because America, we don't ever experience any physical persecution as a result of our faith. But there was more to that. I mean, to deny yourself, that's the, that's the far extent of denying yourself life. But to deny yourself means to deny pursuing things that you think or the world says are going to make you happy, successful, 
fruitful. You're denying yourself those things in order to pursue after Jesus Christ. Now things get a little more close to home, denying yourself those things. And in other places within the Gospels, we read about Jesus explaining this. He says, look, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. I came to divide parents from their children, brothers from sisters, mother-in-law from daughter-in-law. Because especially in the time of Jesus, if you understood this, for someone to choose to follow Jesus meant they would be pushed out of the synagogue. It means the religious leaders would consider them anathema, outcasts. Their own family members would shun them. So it was a very costly thing in terms of your own relationships. Now, there is some measure that might happen in today's America where you might be increasingly looked upon in a negative way as someone who's backwards, for example. So there are real costs that we might pay today. He even goes on to say things like, if you do not hate your mother and father, you are not worthy of me. And again, he's not promoting hate. It's a, it's a way of speaking in hyperbolic terms to illustrate how great your love for the Lord needs to be that in comparison with that love, the other strongest loves that you have in your life look like, in comparison, hate. You have to have that measure of attachment to Jesus and whatever he sends you out to do. That's the cost of discipleship. In other words, the cost of discipleship is, is everything. It is absolutely everything. Which, you know, that would, should bring up a logical question. Well, what on earth would move a person to pay such a cost? <laughs> I mean, the, the rational answer was there has to be some benefit that outweighs that cost. And what could that possibly be? For no one on this earth, limited to what we know and understand about this earth, would ever pay that cost. I mean, how would you pay everything for that cost if all you're exposed to are the things of this world? Well, just from a logical perspective, if Jesus makes this declaration that this is the cost, and yet there are people willing to follow him, some people have been willing to pay that cost. And you think, well, what on earth happened in their minds? In their minds, they recognized something about following Jesus had a higher value than the cost that they were willing to give up. That concept is out there. There's something greater in terms of the benefits of following Jesus that outweighs the, the high cost that he's describing with discipleship. And I think it's important that we understand how high the cost is if you're to have any concept of how great the benefit is. You have to know that it costs you absolutely everything. Now, as he moves on to talking about the benefits, he does that, by the way, or at least he gives us some clues as to what it would be. In verse 35, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So there's something about the idea of saving your life. And then he goes on, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And I like this comparison. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's another value statement. Can you imagine what it would be like if you 
had the whole world. When I think of those you know, wealthiest people in the world that we know of, the, the Bill Gates, the Elon Musks, and you realize there is absolutely nothing beyond their reach in terms of financially what they might do. I mean, they might restrict themselves from their time and their ideologies, but the fact that they have the money to do absolutely anything they wanted to, to do. If they're somewhere in the world they wanted to go, they could go. Can you imagine being in a place where you have access to anything in the world? You think about what, your, what is your bucket list. You can tack off every single item on your bucket list. You get to experience those things. You get to see those places. You get to stay in the most luxurious resorts, have access to the, the, the most expensive, nice cars or planes or yachts or vacation homes. There's absolutely no limit. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you had all of that, it would still not be worth what your soul is worth. The idea that the soul is going to outlive this world. What you have in this world is limited to 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But your soul will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. So when you're comparing all the wealth and all the riches that exist in this world next to extending out for eternity, they can't compare. I mean, it's like a, a speck of sand compared to the Sahara Desert. It's like a drop of water compared to the oceans of the world. It's like a single molecule of oxygen in the whole of the atmosphere. You cannot compare even the wonders and the glories and the riches and the wealth of this world to your soul that will exist, live forever. That's the cost. That's the benefit. He's saying he, he who is willing to give up his life in this world will save his life for all eternity. It is a big exchange. So he's, he's painting the picture that while it is extremely high cost, costs you everything, there is a benefit out there that so far exceeds what you will be paying that is incomprehensible. Now, I, get, I know that's a, it's, a, it's kind of this generic idea. It's, it's just an idea, the idea that there is a benefit out there that somehow outweighs even if I had everything that existed on this earth. But still, we don't exactly know what that is. It's just an idea. How do you get this concept, this idea, become so real in your life that you're willing to pay that cost? And I think the answer is knowing, well, well what is out there in eternity? Who is there in eternity? The idea of God is there in eternity. And we read about that. That's what we find. What is this God like? And we come to the, the original part that we read. Jesus is the one talking to them. He's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others still one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. The ironic thing, he says, and he charged them not to tell anyone about him. You think, what? <laughs> because they didn't really understand what was the Christ meant to do. They understood that was a very significant thing, and yes, he is the Christ, 
But their idea of what the Christ was going to do, the Messiah, the promised anointed one was going to do, was a little bit out of line with what he was actually going to do. We know this because he continues on and began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says this and this didn't fit with Peter's paradigm evidently because Peter goes on to rebuke him. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Peter was the bold one in the group. And we read this in verse 33. Can you imagine being in Peter's place? He wants what's best. This doesn't line up with the expectations of Messiah. Messiah is supposed to come, and he's supposed to restore the kingdom of Israel. He's supposed to push out those who are the oppressors, restore us as a national power, as a people of prosperity and significance in the world. And if you go and suffer and die, that can't happen. Lord, so may that never be, he says. And Jesus, with the strongest language he can possibly muster that Peter would understand, says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Jesus calling you Satan? I mean, that is a terrifying thing. Let's think about what the word Satan means. It means adversary. Get behind me, adversary. You are my adversary right now. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And the words that Jesus says are very intentional. He says, he says the Son of Man must suffer. And I want, you know, if you, have, if you like to highlight things, underline, highlight that word must, must suffer. There is no other path for the Messiah to accomplish his mission other than by suffering. Must, must, must. It is necessary that he suffer and die. Because what Peter didn't understand was who the enemy was that Jesus came to conquer. Peter thought it was the Romans or the Egyptians, or the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, or whoever might be the, the earthly enemies of Israel. But Jesus knew there was an enemy that was far beyond and far greater than those. And that's who he came to do battle with. For that enemy has a weapon that not a single one of us has a defense against. That enemy has the weapon of God's own righteousness. For his name, Satan, his name, adversary, is appropriate. He is the adversary who goes into the courtroom of God, depending upon the righteous justice of God, and brings your case before him, exposing your life before the judge, showing how you are guilty here and here and here and here, not only in what you did, but in what you thought and in what you desired. They all get exposed before the judge. And his weapon is that he depends upon God to be God and a righteous judge so that the only thing he can issue in terms of his decree is condemnation and guilty. That's the weapon of our adversary. It's the very hand of God against us. So when Jesus said it, was, it is necessary that he go and die, 
What he was doing was taking this weapon out of the enemy's hands. I'm going to go before the judge. And when he sees all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of those things for which you have to be condemned to eternity in hell for, he says, I'm going to take your place. Which is why he had to go to the cross. It's why he utters the words he does on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, the judgment that we deserve was being extended to Jesus Christ. The, the cross itself was a way of typifying for us the torment that Jesus had to endure at the judgment of God. It was a physical, visible expression of something that was far worse that was happening. We know that. You realize when Jesus was being flogged, all of those things humiliated, he never utters a word. It says, like a sheep before the slaughter, he was silent. The first complaint that we ever see Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the Father to take this cup from me because he knew what was coming and he began to sweat drops of blood. And how do you explain drops of blood? You know, the best way I've heard to explain it is that he was under, he was enduring so much stress because he could see what was coming that the very capillaries in his temples were bursting and mixing with his sweat. And when he hung on that cross and he uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time he had ever felt the loss of connection with his father. He felt the darkness, the emptiness, the blackness that we deserve. And by doing that, he was taking the weapon out of the enemy's hands. For in God's court, there is no double jeopardy. If you are in Christ, the death penalty has already been extended, it's already been issued, it's already been paid. There is and can be no condemnation remaining for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we get that picture, it tells us what's in eternity. In eternity is a God who loves you so much that he was willing to send his only son whom he loved into the very depths of hell to take that weapon out of your enemy's hands. That's who's in eternity with you. When you go to eternity, what makes it so great is here is the one, the living God, in all his glory and all his righteousness, who loves you even though he sees everything about you. He knows you better than you know you. He knows every dark place that has ever existed in your mind or in your heart. And yet he said, even in light of that, I'm going to go and stand in your place. Paul explains, you know, God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners in our blackness of heart, Christ died for us. Not after we fixed ourselves, not after we made vows or promises, but while we were still sinners. So the question is, is it worth it? 
What makes you pay that cost of discipleship? It's having your eyes opened to see that reality. And by the way, Matthew says something, a part of this that Mark doesn't include. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And of course, Mark puts that on display by Jesus going around healing those who are blind, restoring their sight, opening the ears that are deaf, which is why he says time and again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear this truth. He who has eyes to see, let him see this reality. Let him see me as the Christ. Let him see me as the example before you, illustrating God's love. What makes it worth it? The whole world doesn't have enough to offer in exchange for your soul. Jesus says, he who will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. The life I'm talking about extends for eternity in the presence of a living God who loves you beyond anything you've ever experienced before. More than your mother loved you, more than your spouse loved you, more than your child loves you, more than your best friend has ever loved you. This is one who loves you more. So my challenge to you this morning is very simple. Do you know him? What kind of relationship do you have with him? Is it just the casual one where you talk occasionally, but he makes no impact upon your life? Or is it one when you say, I'm going to follow you, even though it costs me everything? Because the benefits outweigh the costs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you did not hold back in explaining the high cost of following you as a disciple because it helps us to see how much greater is the benefit that you have in store for those that belong to you, those who have put their faith squarely in you. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that you would open their eyes to see you in your glory. Open our ears to hear your voice calling to us. Quicken us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.